Welcome back to Beyond Sunday School. Glad to have you here this week with us. Uh, we record live Wednesdays at 7 o'clock. And uh, if you would like to be a part of our live recording session in the Zoom room, you can do so by just leaving a comment anywhere that you uh, bump into this uh, podcast. And, uh, you know, I will get you that link, or you can send me a private message. Anywhere uh, that you, uh, anywhere that you find, can find me. So uh, I am pretty much at Daniel M Rose on just about every social media platform there is. So feel free to reach out. Let me know if you'd want to be in the Zoom room uh, as a part of our live recording sessions of Beyond Sunday School. This uh, season, we have been uh, looking at the person of Jesus from the place of history, and. Uh, We've tongue-in-cheek called this putting Jesus in his place. Uh, we are working our way through uh, the uh, absolutely fantastic New Testament survey called The New Testament in Its World by N.T. Wright and Michael Bird. And as we walk through this together, we really are trying to bring together uh, theology literature, and history as we ask some fundamental Christians about the Christian faith. And so this season, as we are looking at Jesus from the, from the angle of history, we've been, asking, we've been asking questions, and lately we've been asking the question of, you know, who did Jesus think he was? What were, uh, what were kind of his, what was his mindset towards himself? What was his self-understanding? And now we are moving into a new set of question, a new question, which is, why did Jesus die? Why, why did, why did this need to happen? Why was this part of the story? And sometimes these kinds of questions we answer very quickly. We, uh, we kind of look at it and go, well, he died for our sins. And uh, that is definitely part of the reason, but there is a whole lot more going on there than just that answer. So as we go through tonight, you may hear some voices. Uh, they are the folks who are in the Zoom room with me, and they uh, are able to ask questions, and they're able to be a part of, of this live conversation. And so if you hear, the, hear voices, uh, you're not going crazy. It's just folks here in the Zoom room. So again, would love to have you uh, a, part of, a part of this conversation. So uh, let's, let's dive in. We are wrestling uh, this week with this question. Why did Jesus die? Now, uh, this is one of those things that from the place of history, we can know with as close to absolute historical certainty uh, as, as we can. Uh, there's there's not there's not a lot of evidence uh, stating otherwise that Jesus didn't die. Uh, so regardless of whether somebody believes Jesus is Lord, whether or not somebody believes that Jesus is the Messiah, whether or not uh, they believe he is God, uh, this historical fact of a person Jesus of Nazareth is one of those facts historically that are attested to. And uh, that really, any serious historian doesn't doesn't doubt there was a that there was a man named Jesus who was from the city of Nazareth, uh, around the 
the first, you know, the, the beginning of, of the first century who, who was put to death on a cross by, by the Romans under Pontius Pilate. So that, that question uh, really isn't one that we need to delve into very much. But this broader question, why did Jesus die? Uh, this, this why question is the harder question to answer. And like I mentioned before, we, we can very easily jump to the theological concept of he died for our sins, which is, which is absolutely true. But if we just jump to that, we miss out on the full range of, of the answer to this question. And I think if we can walk our way through this broader this broader question, if we can think our way through it, if we can look at this question of why did Jesus die from that historical perspective, and I would argue even from the biblical perspective, we get this deeper, fuller, uh, more clear understanding of what Jesus did on the cross. And I think what it does too is it moves us even further to a place of gratitude. And I think it also uh, tie, begins to tie together this broad story that we see in the scriptures. And, and so as opposed to just uh, making it into this small little thing, uh, we, we are able to expand it and we're able to, 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 to make it uh, into this full-orbed concept that we see in the scriptures. Now the gospel writers they they didn't they didn't hesitate. They were asking bigger questions. And sometimes they're the questions that we ignore. Questions like why did the leaders of the Jewish people ask for Rome to crucify Jesus? Why did Pilate agree to do it? Did Jesus intend to die? How does this all relate to Jesus's self-identified vocation of Messiah in bringing God's kingdom to earth? These are all questions that the gospel writers, uh, they, they wrestle with. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all wrestle with these questions. And they wrestle with how do these, how do these questions fit into the broader history of the people of God? How do these questions fit into this story that Jesus was not just telling, but that he was living out in front of those first disciples? And so if we just jump to the he died for our sins thing, we miss out on this rich tapestry of our history and of the story of the people of God. And so we don't want to just make the jump, right? We want to we want to dive in. We want to go deep. We want to work our way through this question of why did Jesus die? So First, maybe we should ask the question, what were the charges against Jesus? Right? What 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 was he what was he accused of doing? Well, ultimately, Jesus was executed for sedition against Rome. This this is the primary charge that Jesus faced. And uh this this charge though uh creates a bit of a historical problem. Uh, because both parties knew this was a false charge. We have no evidence that Jesus was planning, leading, 
setting up or inciting any kind of sedition against the Roman Empire. There's no historical evidence of this. So if this is the charge, how did we get there? And how, how do two parties that know with certainty Jesus wasn't doing this uh, convict him of this crime and leave him to die on a cross? Now, uh, so, so let's, let's consider Pilate first. As we look at the Gospels, Pilate is presented as a weak, cynical bully. He's just kind of, he's just kind of the worst. I mean, there's, there's, you don't get a lot of redeeming value uh, of, of Pilate. Now, uh, as tradition happens, as things kind of move on in the story of Christianity, Pilate uh, in some uh, Christian circles gets recast as as a hero uh, because he's the one that's you know that 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 moves Jesus to the cross officially, which then brings about the forgiveness of sin. The other reason why at some point in uh, you know church history, Pilate becomes more of a hero is because uh, there was some anti-Jewish. Uh, flavor running through some of uh, some of the church, and so that if Pilate kind of becomes this this hero, then they're able to they were able to lay all of the blame at the feet of uh, of the Jews, and so that's that's problematic. The gospel writers weren't trying to do that. The gospel writers saw Pilate for who he was. They painted a picture of Pilate that was unflattering. He uh, he was weak, cynical, and a bully. Now, uh, when you, you know, when you think about what what went down in that interaction between Jesus and Pilate and the high priest and Pilate, a couple things uh, jump right off the page to you, right? So, the first thing is Pilate followed his usual way of doing things, which was to do the exact opposite of what the chief priest wanted. So, the chief priest initially brings Pilate. It brings Jesus to Pilate, and Pilate's like, "There's nothing. I seen. There, I see nothing wrong here. There's there's nothing wrong." And sends him back. He doesn't want anything to do with him. Um, and so the chief priest, you know, has to he he works. He has to work the system a little bit. Um, and the chief priest ultimately gives Pilate uh, no other option because basically what the chief priest says is this. He says, "Look, this guy." is claiming to be the king of the Jews. He is claiming to be the Messiah. If he's claiming to be the king of the Jews, if he's claiming to be the Messiah, then he is challenging the authority of Caesar. If you don't kill him, if you don't put him to death, if you don't find him guilty, what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and let Caesar know that you have no problem with this Jewish rabbi claiming to be king, claiming to be uh, Caesar's you know, a challenge to Caesar's authority here. Well, <laughs> Pilate, you know, he he can't. That it's not going to work for him. So, what does he do? He he washes his hands right of this. Literally washes his hands, saying, "I'm I'm washing my hands of this situation. It is it is just pure cynicism on on behalf of Pilate." And I really like the way that Wright and Bird put this. They say, Pilate put cynical power games before justice. Uh, 
But also, on this occasion, he put naked self-interest before them both. You see, Pilate's greatest concern uh, was to find favor with Caesar. He did not want Caesar to make the decision that you know Pilate was in some way against him or undercutting his authority. So, so you know, Pilate, Pilate just kind of does what uh, any good political operator would do, and uh, and that is, you know, to to make make things expedient and crucify Jesus, find him guilty. Now, this leads us to the next question. Why did the chief priests hand him over to death? Why would the this group of leaders who did not like Rome, did not like Pilate, did not respect Pilate, were oftentimes at odds with Pilate. Why would they turn around and work with Pilate and hand one of their own over to death? Well, uh, the first reason is that they they believed that Jesus was leading Israel astray. Now, from uh, a from the Jewish tradition of the time, uh, there is uh, there is a piece of writing called the Babylonian Talmud, and in it, uh, it says this about Jesus's execution. It says, Jesus was hanged on the eve of Passover. The herald went before him for 40 days, saying, he is going forth to be stoned. And because he practiced sorcery and enticed and led uh, Israel astray, let everyone knowing anything in his defense come and plead for him. But nothing was found in his defense, so he was hanged on the eve of Passover. So uh, what we what we get from from there is according to Jewish tradition, there was there was no one that came to Jesus's defense. There was nobody that would speak on his behalf. And therefore he was he was hanged on on the cross. Now uh, the other thing that's in there is this statement about leading Israel astray. What does that mean? How how is Jesus leading Israel astray? Because it seems like from from reading the Gospels that the teaching of Jesus was one that was focused on love. It was focused on sacrifice. It was focused on mercy and compassion. Right? I mean, what what was going on? Where what would they have? How would they have understood Jesus to be leading uh, the people astray? Well. Uh, when we look at his actions and teachings, uh, they they could definitely be understood to be in opposition to the temple and Torah. Right? Uh, we, we talked we've talked at length about Jesus's challenge to the temple. Jesus saying talking about the temple being destroyed. Jesus seeking to embo- being the new embodiment of the temple of moving the temple out of you know out of the center of worship to him being that as as the one bringing the presence of Israel's god we've we've seen how he has said you said things like you have heard it said but now i say to you where he challenges uh some of the some of the some of some of torah and and, and reinterprets it in a way that that probably made uh many of the 
of the leaders very uncomfortable because it challenged them. Now, Jesus, in in how he was uh, acting, you know, uh, what he was doing, what he was teaching, combined with things like uh, his miracle working and, and healing, he gained this huge following, right? Like we read in the Gospels about how, uh, you know, Jesus would show up in a town and just there would be tons of people to the point where he'd have to go out into the wilderness or he'd have to go up to a mountainside to teach them. Uh, he would almost be crushed by the number of people who were coming to see him. And so uh, Jesus was doing all of this during a highly charged social and political environment. And uh, and as a result, the authorities saw him as a troublemaker. He had He was wielding a lot of social power. If Jesus had said, hey, let's rise up and go fight, people would have risen up and gone and fought, right? This is, this is what, uh, this, is, this is part of the reason why the Jewish leaders saw Jesus as a threat. Now, the last thing uh, is that in, in his hearing before Caiaphas, uh, they, you know, Caiaphas needed to find a charge that Pilate could not refuse. That was one, so they came up with the sedition thing. But they also needed a crime against Jewish law to turn the people in their favor because Jesus was a popular figure among the masses. And so they had to, they had to come up with, with something, uh, some high, high crime and misdemeanor. And, uh, and so the idea um, of, of him kind of, you know, saying things that were heretical uh were the this was the way that Caiaphas saw that he could that he could levy these charges against Jesus and in the masses might come over to his side so the idea of Jesus you know claiming some sort of uh equality with God right them understanding his teaching as his self-identification his self-understanding of of being divine and we talked about that last week so you can go back and check out that uh, that episode if you want to go deeper into that question so this is so so Caiaphas is a master of the political game he's figured out a a charge that uh that Pilate couldn't refuse, and he also figured out a charge that might potentially get the masses on his side as well. So, uh, we also know that there was there was a lot writing on this. Uh, in John chapter eleven, forty-seven through forty-eight, we see this little interaction. And uh, it says, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. You see, they saw Jesus as a threat to temple and nation. They saw Jesus as potentially incurring the wrath of Rome. And they couldn't stand by. They, they saw themselves as the protectors of, of the Jewish people. And they saw Jesus as, as, being, as being a real problem. And it's the next verse here is where Caiaphas says, hey, let's let one die for the many. Why should the many die when we could just offer up this one? And, and it says, from that day forward, they were planning his, his death. 
And so, you know, this this was we 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 can't overlook this, right? We 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 have to understand that there is this context because I think sometimes sometimes we paint the the high you know the, the chief priests and the Pharisees in this really bad light. Um, we see them as as bad guys, and while maybe we don't like some of the things we did, they they did. We also need to understand that if we were in their shoes, we may have probably done the same thing, because they were very worried about Rome sending in the troops and Rome thinking that there was uh, a coup happening in in Jerusalem. The last thing they wanted were were Roman troops, Roman centurions, uh, entering into open warfare against their people, and so there. This is this is the context that all of this is happening. So, from the perspective of the Jewish authorities, Jesus died for five reasons. Reason number one, he was a false prophet, leading many astray. This was. This was kind of the, the first big thing. This is the theological argument that they would have made, that uh, because he was a false prophet, he, he deserved to die as, in accordance with the scriptures. Secondly, his action against the temple, they understood to be a challenge against the key symbol of their possible deliverance by God. Right? Remember, the temple is, is, is the place where they believed that God dwelt. It was it was the place where they believed God's presence would return. It is it is through the temple system that they believed they would be able to uh, deal with their sin individually and corporately, so that God would return and God would bring them out of exile and God would overthrow the Romans. But when Jesus, you know, cleansed the temple, when Jesus prophesied against the temple. Um, they saw that as a as a direct attack on the temple itself. They saw that as um, as as hurting their chances of having of having God return to to bring them out of exile. Third, even though he was not personally leading a military revolt. His self-identity as Messiah could lead the people to rally around him for such a thing. Jesus was very much not a zealot, regardless of what some uh, some people want to say. Like there was a, a recent book by Reza Aslan called Jesus the Zealot, where he makes the argument that Jesus was a a violent revolutionary. It, it doesn't it doesn't track. Jesus was not a zealot. He was not a part of the zealot party. And so, but yet Jesus was somebody whom the masses loved. He was somebody whom the masses would be willing to follow. And, and so there, there was kind of this sense of un, possible unintended consequences from what Jesus was doing and how he was living uh, out in the world. And, and so the, they were afraid that the people could possibly rally f- towards a, a military revolt, a violent revolt. And uh, in so doing, would bring the wrath of Rome. And so these three things, false prophet, action against the temple, uh, possibility of a military revolt, uh, laid the foundation for their, their, which is the fourth issue, their deep concern that Rome would move into action against the Jewish people.
And then fifth, when we read through the Gospels, Jesus pleads guilty to the charges. He, he, he doesn't deny them. And, uh, and, and he did so in a way to place himself alongside God. In this, and again, we looked at this in depth last week, so we're not going to go back into it, but you can go back and check it out. Uh, but this, you know, these, so these are kind of the five reasons uh, from the Jewish pers- authority's perspective why Jesus had to die. Now we see this begin to get fleshed out in, in the last supper, right? This, this, uh, Jesus in the last supper, uh, begins to tie everything together. So what was the last supper? Well, it was a celebration of the Passover meal. Now there's some debate about, you know, did Jesus eat this meal on the eve of Passover? Did he eat it on the Passover? Um, you know, on, uh, in, I mean, this is this is just tough. Uh, the synoptics say that Jesus ate uh, this meal with his disciples on the Passover. The Gospel of John says it was on the night before the Passover, the day of preparation. Um, uh, some scholars think that probably what happened is that uh, to tie this together, the the synoptics placed it. Uh, you know, said it was just the Passover meal. That John was probably a little bit more accurate that this happened on the eve of Passover. And so, uh, either way, uh, it doesn't matter because what was happening is the meal. The issue is the meal, not necessarily the timing of the meal. The meal is is what's central. And so, what happens in the Passover meal? Well, it, this is. This is a telling of the story of the Exodus and the hopeful look towards a future from exile. This is what the Passover meal had become. So Jesus then fuses the Passover to his own story and placed himself at the center of the drama as the agent of renewal, restoration, and reconciliation. That's the beautiful thing that happens in in the Last Supper is that Jesus takes that central role. He is the one who renews all things. He is the one that restores all things. He is the one that reconciles all things. He is the central actor of what is happening in the Passover story through the Last Supper. Wright and Bird put it this way. It says, When Jesus wanted to fully explain what his forthcoming death was all about, in other words, He didn't give his followers a theory of atonement. He didn't give them a sermon, a lecture, or even a set of scriptural texts. He gave them a meal. The meal would interpret and explain not only his death, but also his entire vocation. That is a remarkable thing that Jesus didn't leave them didn't explain things to them uh, in the normal way. He didn't, you know, he he didn't give us a new sermon on the mount. We don't have a, you know, sermon in the upper room. We have a prayer in the upper room. We have the high priestly prayer that takes place there. We have interactions that take place there. But Jesus, Jesus, he 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 plays this thing out. He acts this thing out in the context of a meal, a meal that he encourages his people to, to, to eat over and over and over again. 
This meal becomes the center of everything. Because it's in the story of, of the Passover, united in the life and work of Jesus, that we see this whole thing begin to play out. We see this drama play out. It is, it is just absolutely a fascinating uh, way to think about what Jesus was doing. So, so in the Last Supper, right, what do we see? We see this Passover meal. Um, where they were celebrating Israel's God coming as king. That's that's really what happens in the Passover meal. Um, this final meal brought Jesus' kingdom movement, movement to a head and that it was all happening through Jesus. He makes himself the center of the Passover story, right? He is the one. It is, it is you know, it is through his blood, his broken body that was going to be bring about the new covenant, right? This is... This is what's happening. He is he is the one that will renew the covenant. He is the one that through his life, death, resurrection is going to 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 bring all of this to pass. There are four accounts of the last supper. Matthew 26, 26 through 29, Mark 14, 22 through 25, Luke 22, 15 through 20 and 1 Corinthians 11:23 through 26. In all four accounts we see an emphasis of covenant renewal marking the end of exile. This is what is happening in, in, this, in this Last Supper. The bread and wine, which are loaded with all kinds of symbolism already as, the, as you come into it, uh, they take on all new depth, right? Sacrifice and presence. Jesus' bodily presence with us and his sacrifice for the world. This this is what we now see in this new, uh, deeper symbolism that takes place in in the bread and in the wine. So, um, so what what do we do then? The next question that we have to wrestle with is what do, what do we do? What do we do with Jesus's predictions? of crucifixion because maybe this can help us try to answer more deeply why did Jesus die well uh, as we as we dive into this at uh, first some people believe that those predictions that we see through the gospels are apologetic projections by the gospel writers what does that mean well it means that some scholars think that when the gospel writers wrote down their stories they took these ideas, these developed ideas about what was happening in the crucifixion and wrote them back into the story that Jesus may not have actually said that. However, the material regarding these predictions of crucifixion are widely attested. They're prevalent across early traditions. And so that points to a reality that these are statements that would not be later inventions. The simplest answer is that Jesus did say these things, that these were the ideas that, that he was teaching. They also are not the ramblings of some depressed person or somebody who is seeking to become a martyr. They really do represent an honest reflection of the results of the kind of statements Jesus was making. Which is important, right? This is it's kind of a, a big deal to think about. Jesus fully understood what uh, 
what was going on. He understood the kind of things that he was saying, and he knew the result, potential result of those things. He was actually quite certain about what was going to happen to him. He had, there were no pretenses in his mind what, what was going to happen as he, as he went into and challenged the powers that be. Right? He, he, he had a real clear sense of what was coming. Now, uh, these, these statements that Jesus makes uh, can, also be, uh, can also be thought about as, as kind of riddles, right? The riddles of the cross is the way that Wright and Bird put them. And uh, I think that's an interesting way of, of thinking about this. Um, and, uh, and there's two kind of categories here. You have explicit statements and you have cryptic statements. Now, the explicit statements about his death, uh, we find in, you know, Mark 8, 31 through 9, 1, Mark 9, 12, Matthew 17, 22 through 23, Luke 9, 44, Matthew 20, 17 through 19, Mark 10, 32 through 34, Luke 18, 31 through 33. These explicit statements where he says, I am going to die. I, the son of man is going to the cross. When he says things like that, that are explicit and the response by the disciples are like, no way. What are you talking about? Right? I mean, in one of those explicit statements, Peter says, no, this is not going to happen. And Jesus, you know, it's that famous, you know, get behind me, Satan moment. Right? So it's this, um, so these explicit statements that he makes are, they are un. It's uncomfortable. They are, you know, <laughs> they are challenged, and uh, you know, Jesus. Jesus doesn't hold back. But then he also makes cryptic statements, and these are the ones that are really interesting. Um, you know, so because they get to you know a little bit more of the heart of this whole thing. Uh, so you have in, in Matthew nine, Mark. 915 and then it's parallels in Mark and Luke. You have the bridegroom being taken away. You have Jesus in Luke 13 talking about a prophet not dying except in Jerusalem. Um in Luke 17 and in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, you have uh Jesus telling his disciples that they're going to have to deal with his absence. That they're going to have to wrestle with this reality that there's going to come a time when he will not be with them anymore. Uh Jesus uh he he hits on this idea of um of of being uh you know green wood being burnt as opposed uh, to the dry sticks that are ready for kindling, and uh, you can. And he talks about that in uh, Luke twenty three thirty one, and and you can cross reference that with uh, Hosea. Uh, in and you catch uh, you catch this this beautiful this beautiful little picture in Hosea ten one through fifteen uh, that Jesus is probably building off of. Uh, and then you have this this other story of a landowner's son being killed in Matthew 21, 33 through 46, and its parallels in Mark and Luke. So Jesus is, is telling telling these these cryptic stories, and he's he's painting this picture. And uh and, and it doesn't stop there. Uh from explicit to cryptic 
And then he also uh, walks through this with some scriptural resonance. Uh, he he talks about how his death is like is provides a ransom like Isaiah's servant, and you see that in Matthew twenty twenty eight, and it's parallel in Mark, and you cross reference that with Isaiah fifty three eleven through twelve, or this image of a hen gathering her chicks like God had done, Matthew twenty three thirty seven through thirty nine, cross references to Deuteronomy thirty two eleven or Isaiah thirty one five or a bunch of Psalms. Um, he also talks about how he is going to drink a cup and undergo a baptism. These are uh, Jewish scripture images of, uh, of, of facing judgment. And uh, so for baptism, you can read about that in Mark 10, 38 through 39, and cross-reference that with Job 9.31 and Psalms 18.32 and 42. That's the baptism piece. And then if you want to look at the drinking of the cup of judgment, you can check out Zechariah uh, 12.2 and Ezekiel 23.31 through 34. Uh, And then in Matthew 26.31 and Mark 14.27, he talks about how he's going to be struck down like the shepherd in Zechariah, which you can read about in Zechariah 13.7. So he is... He's 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 talking about his death in ways uh, that that resonate with scripture that resonate with the scriptures that his hearers would have known would have believed would have embraced and uh, and so he's doing all this right he is he's talking explicitly about his death he's talking cryptically about his death and then he's reson- he's using these images from uh, from the scripture so he is building this picture of why he has to die of of what is happening here and how this is a uh, how this is the, uh, the really the the culmination of of his of his work as the the one who is bringing about the reconciliation of all things now Wright and bird say it this way uh they say the cross is the surest, truest, deepest window on the very heart and character of the living and loving God. The more we learn about the cross in all its historical and theological dimensions, the more we discover about the one in whose image we are made, and hence about our own vocation to be the cross-bearing people, the people in whose lives and service the living God is made known. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. Why did Jesus have to die? Did he have to die to for for forgiveness? Did he have to die to to set things right? Did he have to die for the forgiveness of sins? Yes. Did he have to die to to bring restoration to the people of Israel? Yes. Did he have to die for the reconciliation of of the whole world of all of creation to 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 take us from Genesis 3 back to Genesis 2? Yes. Did did he have to die for the for a restoration and for reconciliation to happen? Yes. All of those things are true. But it's more than just those things. It's all of it. Because it's in his it's in his death that we get this clearest picture of who God is. Do we truly want to know God? Do we truly want to try to follow and live like this Christ? If so, then then we have to look to the cross. You see, the cross, it's the culmination. It is, 
it is in the cross that we find this clearest, the clearest picture of Jesus's vocation of Messiah and Redeemer and Reconciler and Restorer and Renewer. He, it is there that all of these things, all of these loose ends that are just kind of floating out there get tied together. They get tied together in the cross. And so when we ask this question, why did Jesus die? You see, it is so much more than he died for our sins. It's yes, that he died for our sins, but it is also to show us how to live. You see, we, we as God's people are to be a people who are, who are living is as those that, that are, you know, following the way of Christ. And the way of Christ is, is the way of the cross. The way of Christ is, is, is through self-sacrifice. The way of Christ is, is the Christ that we see in love, giving himself for the world. So if we are going to say that we are followers of Christ, then we, by definition, must be people of the cross. We, by definition, must be looking at this bigger, broader question. Why did Jesus die? The answer for us must be like a prism that we turn and we're constantly seeing new light and new beauty and new colors as we turn it. Because it's not just about my sin getting forgiven. It is not just an individualistic thing. It's not just about Jesus dying for the world. It's not just about him building a movement, building a church. It's not just about those things. It is all of those things. And then how we are to live because the cross is the ultimate demonstration of how Jesus lived. This is the upside down nature of the person of Jesus is that through his death, he ultimately shows us how we are to live. And as we think about our day, our age, our culture, our society, we need a church of the cross. We need, we need people who are going to follow this way, who are going to look at the cross and say, ah, that's, that's how I need to live. Not people looking to be martyrs. That's not, that's not what we're saying. It is people who are willing to live sacrificial lives on behalf of others. It is a people willing to say, I will set my rights aside for the good of others. It is people willing to live lives of compassionate love, grace, and empathy. These are all the things that we see on the cross. And so it's this counterintuitive, this upside down, this paradox of paradoxes that in Christ's death, we ultimately see how to live. So if we want to look for a one answer, a one sentence answer to why did Jesus die? Maybe the answer is, so that we could learn how to live. So uh, next next time we start we start a new a new series. We're going to start a new 
a new deep dive uh, into the resurrection of the Son of God. That's that's where we start next time. Uh, so, uh, for those of you, my friends here in the Zoom room, um, do you have questions, thoughts? Uh, what's what's bouncing around in your heads uh, as you have as you've listened uh, to me ramble on now for the last forty five minutes or so? Somewhere in Scripture. I can't remember where. I didn't have time to think of it, look it up. It says that he, uh, Jesus, uh, had the joy set before him to do this all. Where does it say that? Because he knew what he was doing was the right thing. And there was joy in doing what he did, even though there was so much suffering. Yeah. Is there somewhere that says that the joy that was set before him? Yep. That's, that is in Hebrews. Um, okay. I think... That gives me a little hope knowing that yeah. he was sort of in control. You know, a lot of people was on the cross longer, but he gave it up his life. So he, you know, even though it looks so bad to me to see what he had to go through for my sins, it was so part of his plan and there was joy in it mm-hmm. that he could die for my sins, even though I don't like that idea that he suffered. Right. Yeah, it is. It is Hebrews. I'm trying to find the the exact location. Yeah, here. I'm sorry. I should have looked that up before. I no, you're fine. But yes, I mean it. Uh, in, in Hebrews, I mean it says, "For the joy set before him, he faced the cross, scorning its shame." Right. Right. Um, this is this is the beauty of what Christ has done, um, because right. the joy that was set before him was the reconciliation of all things it was the uh, the the coming the coming together it's it's hebrews chapter 12 uh he says therefore since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith for the joy set before him, enduring the, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That is, that is hope for sure. Yeah, that I like a, that. Verse. That is a good call, Dorothy. Janet, Joanne, thoughts? Questions? Could you, um, this is probably a dumb question, but we've heard the the word exile a lot. Yeah. And, you know, exile, when when the Jews ended up in Egypt, or when, when uh, my brain is all mixed up now. Could you just explain the exile a little bit more? Sure. So, because... Okay, go ahead. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that's a great question because the the exile is one of those important, uh, really important theological pieces. It, it ties the whole story together, right? Um, yeah. So uh, we can think of uh, we can think of what what happened with the 
with the people in 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 Exodus as as a sort of exile under under being under oppression from from uh, Egypt. Uh, but mm-hmm. then we see exile in kind of its more modern sense uh, when the when the kingdoms fall, when the northern kingdom falls, uh, the northern kingdom is sent off into exile. They're, they're taken away from the land, and they are and they are and they are, you know, taken taken somewhere else. And then we see the southern kingdom fall, where again uh, they are, you know, there's a group of of Jewish people who are taken from the land and moved somewhere else. They are removed from from their from their from their homes. And so this, like this, yeah. So this is kind of the technical way of thinking about exile. And and so uh, one of the things that we have to understand is that you have you have technical exile or physical exile, where people are physically removed from the land. Um, but then we also have spiritual exile, and uh, the image where we see this this kind of spiritual exile take place uh, most clearly is in the scapegoat uh, on um, on the day of atonement right so the 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 high priest would uh, symbolically lay his he would lay his hand on on the scapegoat uh, symbolically saying that that he is now placing all the sins of the people on the scapegoat and then the scapegoat was sent out into the wilderness it was exiled. This is the, this is the, this is what happens when uh, when we fall short, when we sin, um, we we find our, our place in exile. We see exile in Adam and Eve. Right? What happened to them in Genesis chapter three? They were sent into exile. They were removed from the garden and exiled. So uh, exile is a it's just a it's a really really important uh piece of of the puzzle so very good question very very good question does that help yeah i was just thinking of like we think of the exile when they all went like you were talking about the northern and southern kingdoms and they ended up in babylon and but then they eventually came back so that's the physical exile right right but there's the other kind of exile, the spiritual exile. Correct. It's a much bigger picture than we sometimes think. Exactly. So, you know, the, the Jewish people still understand themselves to be in exile, right? Um, because they can't worship at the temple. They, they are, they are separated from the presence of God because they can't, they can't worship at the temple. The closest they can get to the, to the original temple site is the wailing wall, that, that Western wall. Um, and so there is still this clear sense of, of being in exile to this day. And, uh, and so this, this idea, this, this, the spiritual reality of exiles just, it can't be, it almost can't be overstated. Did you have one? No. Okay, I had one other one, Dan. And yeah. back on one of the slides, you talked about. Um, I just remember the word apologetic being in it, and the gospel writers writing back. I didn't quite get that. Yeah. So, um, so one of the kind of one of the. One of the arguments that some scholars make um, 
is that Jesus in his in those places in the Gospels where Jesus says, I'm going to die, right? Where he is basically prophesying his own death. Um, some scholars want to say that the Gospel writers wrote that back into the story. That Jesus didn't really say that uh, because by, by writing it back into the story, it basically creates this apologetic for uh, Jesus being the Messiah who would die on a cross and and rise again, and so they they see that as uh, as kind of a yeah that that the gospel writers added that and put those words in Jesus's mouth to try to uh, defend uh, Jesus's death and resurrection because you know you know the old saying is a um, a dead Messiah is no Messiah. And uh, which is why we're going to spend some time looking at the resurrection, uh, because if if Jesus just stayed dead, he definitely wouldn't be the Messiah anymore. So, um, so they that's so they they some some just think that it was an apologetic move by the gospel writers trying to kind of build up Jesus's case as as Messiah. Does that does that make sense? So they're basically saying that the that the writers like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, whoever, were making up stories about yeah. what Jesus said. Well, that that they were that they were not necessarily making up stories, but that they were putting some words in Jesus's mouth to make their own theological position stronger. Um, yeah. And and so for us, we look at that and think that's wow. They why would anybody do that? But that was a very normal thing. Um, in in writing in that day and age, right? This was this is not some sort of crazy. It's not a crazy thing, because history history that was being written in the first century is not the same kind of history that we write today. Uh, it's it's much much more narrative, much more storytelling. I mean, even John. I mean, when when you read John, right? I mean, he says, "I am writing this so that you would believe." So. So when when these these gospels these euangelians these euangelians are being written, um, that is a that is a specific type of literature that oftentimes meant that you where people were making a case where people were were arguing um, on behalf of something, and so this isn't it's not a it's not a totally unreasonable thing. It just doesn't seem to fit with what the gospel writers were doing. This seems to be a little bit too cynical, and not only that, but uh, the 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 evidence outside of of the scriptures seemed to line up with it um, being something that Jesus actually said. Does that okay. does that make sense? Is that helpful at all? Um, I I don't know. I think so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a way for it's a way for some some scholars to try to get around. Uh, you know, this it's it's a way for for some folks to try to poke holes in in the yeah. in the text, right? In the story, um, okay. because if Jesus himself isn't saying these things, uh, then he potentially was just some guy who got killed and it's not a thing right um so it's it's a way to it's a way to try to undercut that but it just the evidence just doesn't seem to line up with that at all so 
I don't think it's something to worry about. It's just something uh, that we need to be aware of from from a position of being good scholars and good thinkers and knowing all the information. Okay. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yep. <laughs> all right. Well, any other any other thoughts or questions? Nope. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really oh. enjoyed it. My pleasure. My I pleasure. I learned so much, yeah. Well, good. Good deal. Well, for those of you listening to this as a podcast or watching this later on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, thanks for hanging in and, and watching and being a part of this. Again, would love to invite you to be a part of the Zoom room so you can ask questions too, just like Janet and Joanne and Dorothy do each week. And uh, we'd love to have you a part of this on Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock. Just send me a message and I will get you the link. Uh, but Tuesday until night. next time, love well, my friends. Yeah.